Good morning. It really is an honor to be here with you this morning. My name is Jim Peterson. My wife Heidi and I are covenant missionaries in Japan. And I'm here today, first of all, to simply express our gratitude to you for your partnership in ministry. Uh, the Covenant is a wonderful denomination because they are committed to God's work around the world. But it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for congregations that are teaming together and are praying faithfully and giving generously to God's work. And the fact that your congregation has been doing that specifically for our ministry in Japan for many years is a source of joy and pride for us. And we are so thankful for your partnership. Actually, my connection to this church goes way back. Um, several years ago, I was visiting here, and uh, one of the pastoral staff, when she was introducing me, got up and said, you know, I went in the church office and uh, looked through the files and, uh, to see if I could find out more about Jim, and this is what I found, and she pulled out a bulletin from 1962. And in, there was a notice in the announcements that said, our missionaries... Leonard and Grace Peterson in Japan have had a new baby boy and they named him Jim. <laughs> so that was my introduction to this congregation and uh, I am honored. I am truly humbled and honored by your prayers and your faithfulness and your partnership. So thank you very much. Let's turn to God's word as it has been read to us this morning from the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Life, Jesus is the creator of life, the, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. And as such, Jesus came and spoke and lived truth in this world. This Jesus of life and of truth came and showed us the way and continues to show us the way. He proclaimed the way. He taught the way. He invited us to walk in the way, in his footsteps. Jesus initiated the work of the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. But when Jesus did that work, he didn't do it in a vacuum. The gospel isn't re revealed to us in a sealed container or lantern that we have to rub in a certain way with correct doctrine and practices uh, in order to get that, that unaltered truth. No, it's a little different than that. Jesus' revelation of the truth in some ways was messy because it was real. It was set in the real world. It's revealed in real life and embodied in real actions. That's how Jesus revealed the truth to us. And that's how Jesus lived out the truth. It was often in tension with all of the complex realities that make up the world that we live, serve, and die in. So we are given this revelation of the truth and the way in, the ten in tension with the real world. And that gets inevitably messy. Of course, much of that messiness and that tension comes from the fact that so much of the world is living in darkness. 
the darkness of human sin that gets manifested in hatred, conflict, violence, greed, me first, us first mentality. There's so many forms that it takes. And yet, while we find it easy to identify those sources of darkness in the world that lives apart from Christ, apart from Christianity, outside of the church, in today's passage, it would seem that Jesus is pointing to a darkness that resides much closer to home. And you know, it's, it's easier to sort of hold the world at arm's length in some ways and, and identify the source of all the darkness, the world living without Christ. But in this text, Jesus points much closer, much, much closer. In fact, if you take a moment to look at how the people that were listening to Jesus react to what he has to say, if you think about how it made them feel, it's easy to imagine how uncomfortably close to home Jesus' rebukes find their landing spot. Jesus is living, working, and speaking in the context of the Jewish world. That was his world. And yet he points to the very heart of the Jewish religious institutions and levels some scathing criticisms at them. In some ways, I guess he didn't have much choice because they were the ones that were opposing what he was doing in so many ways. He was initiating his kingdom work and they were pushing back. His loudest critics were consistently those who sought to uphold and and to prioritize faithfulness to God. That's what the Pharisees did. It was their job to promote the centrality of the word of God in the lives of everyone around them and in society at large. And yet they were the ones who seemed to be pushing back the hardest. So we have this incredible tension, this profoundly messy debate about what it means to be faithful to God's word. The Jewish leadership on their side, they had all of Jewish history. They had the journey of God's people that they could point to and all those incredible ways in which God had revealed God's self to them through action, through word. They could, they could simply say, we've learned from history and we, our goal is to remain faithful. And, and yet Jesus chose to take them on. And he boldly proclaims that they've strayed away. That in all their attempts to remain faithful, even down to the finest details, stuff as, as detailed as how you wash your hands, that they have essentially missed the forest for the trees. And in so doing, Jesus is incurring and stirring up the wrath and the condemnation of the religious institutions of that day. The very institutions that lay at the heart of Jewish identity, Jewish life, and Jewish faith. So in today's text, we see this heated debate between the radical Jesus and and the respected religious leaders uh, presented to us in a story that actually almost sounds comical on the surface, centered on the practice of washing your hands before dinner. (laughs) 
It sounds comical because of the details with which the author feels that he has to describe this practice of the Jews, how they, how they wash their hands. It's generally assumed that this gospel was written for Gentile Christians who had been converted to Christianity, particularly living in Rome. And so it makes sense that there would be sort of lengthy descriptions of some of the Jewish practices and doctrines and even the Aramaic language because the readers weren't familiar with that. But still, verses three and four, I don't know, they just seem odd to me. <laughs> I don't know if, that's, if I'm allowed to say that. Um, so it's, it's in parentheses, that was added later. But the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, Okay, so they wash their hands before they eat, they wash their food that they buy in the market, and they wash their dishes. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm trying to picture who, who were this readership that was reading that and going, oh, wow, those Jews, they're so unique and weird. I wonder why they do all those things. Is there anyone here today that doesn't have clear memories of being told to wash your hands before dinner, sometimes maybe even three times a day, and that's even if your parents weren't Jewish. Well, I'll be the first to admit that there are some strange exceptions, like, well, like my own children. Um, not that we didn't try. <laughs> but in spite of our best efforts, when our eldest son went to college, for whatever reason, he adopted some rather unique approaches to personal hygiene. And with a commitment that at times seemed almost religious, he refused to wash his hands when he went to college. Yeah, so if we tried to confront him on this, um, you know, he would embark on these long lectures about the futility of, of regular hand washing. Um, he was a biology major, and he would cite all sorts of scientific evidence about, you know, stuff about how, like, when we don't have enough germs in our system, it weakens our immunity system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for him, the proof was in the pudding. Four years of college, he never got sick once. <laughs> what are you going to do? I, I won't belabor the point, but let it suffice to say that um, he graduated from college, he moved on, he fell in love, he got married, he's a father now, and for whatever reasons, he washes his hands regularly now. <laughs> but guess what? He occasionally gets sick nowadays, so go figure, I don't know. Um, somewhat similarly, my daughter, she has joined that sort of strange uh, cult of people who think that um, washing one's hair regularly is equally detrimental to human health and well-being. And my second son, who's got hair all the way down to the middle of his back, seems to think that brushing and combing hair is completely unnecessary and hasn't done it for I don't know how long. So maybe the only reasonable conclusion to all of these mildly embarrassing stories about my children is that um, my wife and I, along the journey of raising kids, made some really profound mistakes somewhere. I'm not sure. But the point that I'm trying to make is that there are certain practices that we generally consider normal 
uh, healthy, reasonable. And when people don't do those things, uh, they, they are, it's, they're often viewed as maybe somehow kind of gone, gone, having gone off the deep end. Well, in the case of Jesus and his disciples, it was considerably heavier than that because in their context, the Jewish world, this practice of washing your hands, it had ramifications that went far beyond matters of personal hygiene. From the Jewish perspective, this wasn't just a matter of cleanliness. No, it was actually a matter of faithfulness to God's word. It was a matter of holiness. And I'm not going to delve into the depths of Jewish theology trying to explain that connection, but for the sake of shorter sermons, I would simply ask you to accept the fact that for Jewish people, the practices such as this basic hand-washing thing or washing their pots, those practices went to the very core of what it meant to be living a life that was pleasing to God. It was important. So at this point, the unavoidable preacher's question, I guess, is what about our own practices? Are there things that we commonly associate with holiness and faithfulness that possibly are sort of missing the mark? I don't know about you, but I find it easy to maybe identify those kind of things when looking at other people. You know, like maybe my parents. I I love and respect my parents, don't get me wrong. But when they were young teenagers in the 1940s, uh, there were certain distinct traditions of avoidance that may have looked similar to the whole Jewish hand-washing thing. Um, You know, times have changed, but uh, in those days, uh, as young teenagers in the 1940s, Upright Christian youths were always careful to avoid going anywhere near dance halls and bowling alleys. Yeah, I was surprised when my dad told me that. Um, Those places were associated with a lot of ungodly practices. Uh, They were commonly referred to by their parents as dens of iniquity. And so you stayed away from those places. My father was raised with a very clear understanding that young Christian men were never to drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. Um, Those aren't bad instructions at all, but somewhere along the line, uh, some of these, these customs of what it meant to be holy sort of took on a life of their own. Today, I have to admit that what I see in Scripture here has nothing to do with my parents and how they were raised. When Jesus speaks here, Jesus is speaking to me. What are the practices in my life where I may be trying to be faithful to God, trying to be holy, and possibly missing the mark? I'm not going to stand up here and tell you how I think you need to live your lives. That's not my position. But I would like to share a few examples of how this plays out in our context in Japan. So when the first Protestant missionaries arrived in Japan, 
uh, back in 1859, they encountered things for which they were not prepared. Japanese daily life, as they observed it, was full of all these religious practices which, to their eye, looked amazingly similar to all that, that idolatry stuff in the Old Testament that is so harshly uh, prohibited. And so the missionaries and the early Japanese Christians, they worked hard to try to dissuade people from doing any of those idolatrous or seemingly idolatrous, idolatrous practices. And, you know, nowadays Japan is seen as a, a very secular country. It's secular in the sense that very few people think that personal religious faith is supposed to be the foundation of your life. Nevertheless, there are a lot of traditional practices, uh, whether they are religious or not, that have religious connotations uh, that are still a part of everyday life in Japan. For instance, Japanese people regularly offer prayers to their ancestors or on behalf of the spirits of their ancestors. Visiting temples and shrines uh, on certain holidays is very common. When new babies are born, they're always dedicated at Shinto shrines. When funerals are held, they're always done by Buddhist priests. Uh, many people will buy little good luck charms, protective amulets for their children or their car or their business um, at the Shinto shrine. When buildings are, are built, the groundbreaking ceremonies are always done by Shinto priests. Uh, there's a Buddhist almanac that determines certain days to be luckier or more auspicious than others, and people are careful to plan important events like weddings or uh, starting your new business on those auspicious days. And if you build your, a new house, people will often call in a specialist who uh, refers to kind of folk traditions to determine which direction your house and certain components in your house need to be facing. All of these really common practices are done in Japan in the context of religious ceremonies. And even though most Japanese people don't really consider them to be religious practices, but merely kind of folk tradition or custom, Christians in Japan have historically been taught to carefully and faithfully avoid those things because they're pagan and they're idolatrous. So to give one limited example, uh, when someone dies and there's a funeral, it's usually going to be a Buddhist funeral, um, a family member who is a Christian is put in a really hard position. At a traditional Buddhist funeral, uh, there's an altar up front, there's a big picture of the deceased person, and each person will come up to the front and bow to the picture of that deceased person and then offer some incense on the altar up there. That's just normal practice. Everyone who attends the funeral is expected to do that. But those practices, bowing to an image of a dead person, putting incense on the altar in front of that picture, it looks like idolatry. And so, especially from a strict historical perspective of the Christian church in Japan, it looks like idolatry. 
To the non-Christian person who attends that funeral, it's just custom, it's what you do. It's how you show your respects to the person who has died and to the family. So what does the faithful Christian do in that case? Do they, do they take a stand for their faith and not participate in that part of the funeral? Do they choose to intentionally not show respect to their loved one who's passed away and not show respect to the bereaved family? You can probably see how messy it gets. And for the church in Japan, traditionally, avoiding all of those kinds of activities that appear to be idolatrous, that has been deeply embedded in their understanding of what it means to be faithfully following Christ. And yet, some Christians in Japan will look at a passage like today's, where Jesus points to those really important Jewish practices that are part of being faithful to God and says, no, you're missing it. You're completely missing it. Some Japanese Christians will look at those and say, maybe we need to rethink all of this. After all, how can a person, a Christian person in Japan, who publicly and intentionally fails to show respect to their family, how can that person expect to be taken seriously when they want to share their message about a God who loves us and who commands us to love each other and treat each other as though the other person is more important than me? It just doesn't work. So in your own context, right here, uh, I would encourage you to think about, are there traditions, practices, that in, in your midst, in your lives, that while having originated from an attempt to be faithful to God's word, somehow have maybe taken on a life of their own. Practices that have become so prevalent and important that perhaps they leave us with some blind spots about other things. In particular, about the greatest commandment of all, the greatest commandments of all, loving God, and loving one another. Is it possible that these words of Isaiah in verse 6 would be directed towards us? This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. So Jesus says that to the Pharisees, but then, as if to drive home the point that this isn't about pointing fingers at others, Jesus turns to his own disciples in the following verses. His disciples are the ones who are following him. His disciples are the ones who have committed their lives to walking with Jesus, and the disciples are the ones on whom Jesus has poured out his most intentional love and care. And yet they don't seem to get it either. And Jesus rebukes them. You know, they might have been quick to point fingers at the Pharisees along with Jesus, but Jesus forcefully redirects their attention away from the Pharisees and says, no, I'm talking to you guys now. Verses 18 through 23 is where we see that. 
So starting at 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. Then he responds, verse 18, are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And by the way, that whole question of what foods were clean was a huge one for these people. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. I would contend that Jesus continues to redirect our attention away from our looking at others and pointing fingers mode to looking into our own hearts. As if to say, think a little harder, my friend. And don't be surprised if what you find reveals an understanding of God and holiness that has possibly been turned upside down without us ever even noticing. Jesus' people, they were very faithful in washing their hands, or excuse me, Jewish people were faithful in washing their hands because they didn't want to be defiled by sin. Defilement would make them unfit to draw near to God. If they were defiled simply by not observing those practices, It would disqualify them from even entering the temple to worship God, to praise God. And it would also result in them being completely out of harmony with the rest of God's family. But Jesus seems to turn it all upside down, proclaiming that their attempts to remain undefiled and thereby remain close to God were the very things that were separating them from the true heart of God. He says they're looking in the wrong places, worrying about the wrong things. So I put it to you, do you you think that Jesus could still be saying the same thing to us? I believe we are called to think harder, to look deeper, to go beyond the way things appear on the surface, to probe into the depths of our own hearts, to pray for the guidance of the Holy Spirit in that process. And to not be surprised if what we find is that we too have missed the forest for the trees. Creator God, forgive us for our blind spots, wherever they may be. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to more clearly see your truth. Jesus Christ, lead us in your ways. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.